Fancy a Good Story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca and today we have a very special episode for you. Emily, do you want to tell everyone their lovely surprise? Yes. So, as you guys all know, last season we did a deep dive into Erin Morgan Stern's novel The Starless Sea and we had so much fun talking about a book that we'd both read and that we both had all these thoughts about that we wanted to do it again and so the next logical book to do that with is The Night Circus also by Erin Morgenstern. Morgenstern. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a book I've loved pretty much since it came out um, which is over 10 years ago now and Rebecca read it recently as well. So like With start- absolutely no pressure or <laughs> consistent bullying. <laughs> No, I didn't. I didn't. So yeah, like the Starless Sea episode we did, we've come up with like some starting points for discussions. We're going to go through those and then at the end I have random things I want to say and I think you do as well. I feel like Emily's um, got at least 10 years worth of thoughts that she wants to share. I do, but you know that way I wrote this episode and I'm like, there's still so much I haven't said. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, so just a reminder before we jump in, because this is a deep dive, we are going to be talking about spoilers. Like, we'll probably give away the ending, or at least some big plot moments. So if you don't want the book spoiled for you, then you are more than welcome to come back at a later date once you've read the book. Yes. And on that note, Emily, do you want to explain a little bit about the plot of the book? Sure. So I actually thought before I explained what the plot was, I would like lean into the mysterious vibes of the novel and read out the first few pages. Ooh. So this little section of the book, uh, the first few pages, is called Anticipation. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. The circus arrives without warning. No announcements precede it. No paper notices on downtown posts and billboards. No mentions or advertisements on local newspapers. It is simply there, when yesterday it was not. The towering tents are striped in white and black, no golds and crimsons to be seen. No colour at all, save for the neighbouring trees and the grass of the surrounding fields. Black and white stripes on grey sky, countless tents of varying shapes and sizes, with an elaborate wrought iron fence encasing them in a colourless world. Even what little ground is visible from outside is black or white, painted or powdered or treated with some other circus trick. But it is not open for business, not just yet. Within hours, everyone in town has heard about it. By afternoon, the news has spread several towns over. Word of mouth is a more effective method of advertisement than typeset words and exclamation points on paper pamphlets or posters. It is impressive and unusual news. The sudden appearance of a mysterious circus. People marvel at the staggering height of the tallest tents. They stare at the clock that sits just inside the gates that no one can properly describe. And the black sign painted in white letters that hangs upon the gates, the one that reads, opens at nightfall, closes at dawn. What kind of circus is only open at night, people ask. No one has a proper answer. Yet as dusk approaches, there is a substantial crowd of spectators gathering outside the gates. You are amongst them, of course. Your curiosity got the better of you, as curiosity is wont to do. You stand in the fading light, the scarf around your neck pulled up against the chilly evening breeze, 
waiting to see for yourself exactly what kind of circus only opens once the sun sets. The ticket booth clearly visible behind the gates is closed and barred. The tents are still, save for when they ripple ever so slightly in the wind. The only movement within the circus is the clock that ticks by the passing minutes, if such a wonder of sculpture can even be called a clock. The circus looks abandoned and empty, but you think perhaps you can smell caramel wafting through the evening breeze beneath the crisp scent of the autumn leaves, a subtle sweetness at the edges of the cold. The sun disappears completely beyond the horizon, and the remaining luminosity shifts from dusk to twilight. The people around you are growing restless from waiting, a sea of shuffling feet, murmuring about abandoning the endeavour in search for someplace warmer to pass the evening. You yourself are debating departing when it happens. First, there is a popping sound. It is barely audible over the wind and conversation, a soft noise like a kettle about to boil for tea. Then comes the light. All over the tents, small lights begin to flicker, as though the entirety of the circus is covered in particularly bright fireflies. The waiting crowd quiets as it watches this display of illumination. Someone near you gasps. A small child claps his hands with glee at the sight. When the tents are all aglow, sparkling against the night sky, the sign appears. Stretched across the top of the gates, hidden in curls of iron, more firefly-like lights flicker to life. They pop as they brighten, some accompanied by a shower of glowing white sparks and a bit of smoke. The people nearest to the gates take a few steps back. At first, it is only a random pattern of lights, but as more of them ignite, it becomes clear that they are aligned in scripted letters. First the C is distinguishable, followed by more letters a Q, oddly, and several E's. When the final bulb pops alight and the smoke and sparks dissipate, it is finally legible, this elaborate incandescent sign. Leaning to your left to gain a better view, you can see that it reads Le Cirque du Rêve. Some in the crowd smile knowingly, while others frown and look questioningly at their neighbours. A child near you tugs on her mother's sleeve, begging to know what it says. The circus of dreams comes the reply. The girl smiles delightedly. Then the iron gates shudder and unlock, seemingly by their own volition. They swing outward, inviting the crowd inside. Now the circus is open. Now you may enter. Oh, it's such a good beginning. It's just the best start to a book. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what's so weird about it? Is that, like, when I read that, the whole scene felt so familiar. Mm. Like, I felt like, yeah, this is... I know exactly how this goes. Yeah, I feel the same. But I've never... When it said, like, what kind of circus only opens at night, I was like, yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of that conceit. Yeah. But I know exactly how this circus goes. (laughs) Yeah. I also like just reading it out there, because it's... It's so different reading something in your head to like actually reading it out loud. I didn't realise how much like alliteration or like word play mm-hmm. is in it. Like I stumbled over a few words there, but it's like amazing. Um, yeah, you you best believe I wrote down lots and lots of little phrases in my wee poetry squirrely yeah. book from yeah. this book. <laughs> so the Night Circus came out in two thousand eleven and is Erin Morgan Seren's first novel. It's a story about a magical circus, which is the grounds of a duel 
between two magicians, Celia Bowen and Marco Alistair. They're really pawns in a game set by two older, bored magicians, Celia's father, Hector Bowen, and Marco's teacher, who we never actually know his real name, but he goes by Alexander. And the game is Celia and Marco have to keep one-upping each other with their magic tricks until a winner is determined. But the twist, which takes Celia and Marco a long time to realise, is that the only way a player truly wins is if the other dies. And the thing that makes that very sad is that they both fall deeply in love. Which is so obvious that it should suck. (laughs) Yeah. But it doesn't. It's so good. (laughs) It's so good. So, yeah, you have this plot of, like, the dueling magicians who love each other but it's set against the stunning backdrop of the Cirque du Rev, the Circus of Dreams. And dreamlike is definitely the right word here. Like you can tell from that passage, but it's such an immersive experience reading the book. Mm. Like I don't know how you can read it and not feel like you're there. Yeah, <laughs> you, you go to the night, night circus yeah. when you read this book. Um, and all around Celia and, Mar- Celia and Marco, there's a whole host of like other characters, there's performers, like the investors, the visitors. It's this big like ensemble cast. I would argue out of Morgenstern's two novels, this one's probably the easier to follow like plot-wise, but it's still quite an intricate weaving of like stories upon stories. Yeah, you can um, definitely see the beginnings <clears throat> of the larger structure of the Starless Sea. Yeah, so you've got like the main narrative, um, which is like the omniscient third-person narrator, um, but it will jump between which character it follows. And amongst this narrative, you have these little interludes, um, which are like the passage I just read out. They basically just kind of describe the circus to you. And at the start of every section in the novel, you have epigraphs, which apart from like a couple exclusions are actually part of the text. They're written by a character I'm sure we will talk about later. And that's kind of it. We'll probably talk more about plot stuff maybe as we go. I also just wanted to add a note before we started that like obviously I love the Starless Sea so much and this isn't an episode of us like comparing them but like I think I will bring up the Starless Sea quite a bit because it's like an easy touch point Mm. to be like oh remember when this happened in that book? Yeah. This happened in this book because there's a lot of overlapping themes and stuff. Absolutely Um, and it's as you say I think this is like if anyone loved the sound of the Starless Sea but they maybe didn't like the sound of that like weird experimental structure yeah like this is a traditional novel in that it has a beginning a middle and an end yeah and well some of it's out of time it's out of time but you know what i mean like the the overall narrative there is a narrative it's easier to follow yeah say whereas i'd say (laughs) the starless sea is a world more than a narrative yeah but i think they both have very similar like vibes definitely the (laughs) vibes are the vibes are good so yeah that's the introduction over. <laughs> <laughs> now we can get to the podcast. So, Emily, which character were you most infatuated with? I, this is hard. Yeah. So many of the characters are lovable. Others aren't, but that's why I, that's what I like about them. I have my shout-outs before I give my actual answer. I wanted to shout-out Celia and Marco because I think their romance is so, like, like, I just root for them mm. so much. And you do see most of the novel through their eyes, so I think you do get connected to them quite easily. Um, I also love their, like, very different approaches to magic. 
I love Bailey Clark, who I'm going to talk more about later, and I love Friedrich a lot. But I decided to go with Widget as my favourite character. Interesting. Because as I was looking through the book and like looking through all the quotes that I sort of tabbed for this episode, I realised that so many of my favourite bits included him. So it has to be Widget. Love that. Um, Tell me more. So I just want to describe for everyone how delightful Widget and his twin sister Poppet are. First of all, they're called Poppet and Widget. <laughs> that is, yeah... <laughs> Excellent twin names. <laughs> the Murray twins were born on the night of the circus opening, um, which was the 13th of October, 1886. And so the magic of the circus is essentially like embedded in them, giving them gifts. Poppet was born seven minutes after midnight, so on the 14th of October, and so she can see the future. But Widget was born six minutes before midnight, so he can see the past. They also both have bright red hair, which sets them apart from the rest of the circus, which is all in black and white, which I just think is cute. So Widget explains his power of seeing the past like this. He says, The past stays on you the way powdered sugar stays on your fingers. Some people can get rid of it, but it's still there, the events and things that pushed you to where you are now. So essentially he can look at someone and see their past, or at least like little bits of it. Mm. Um, he gets to see people's stories, and so he becomes this really great storyteller, which is why I love him. Um, and I thought to show this, I would read out the first time that we see Poppet ask Widget to tell her a story. I love this scene. <laughs> so this is in the chapter titled The Wizard in the Tree. And I, I read it. this whole chapter well prepping for this episode not because I was going to use it just because yeah. I like it. <laughs> yeah <laughs> tell me a story please Poppet says after a while what kind of story Widget asks he always asks her gives her an opportunity to make a request even if he has one in mind already only preferred or special audiences receive such treatment a story about a tree Poppet says looking up through the twisting black branches above them Widget pauses before he starts, letting the tent and the tree settle into silent prologue while Poppet waits patiently. Secrets have power, Widget begins, and that power diminishes when they are shared, so they are best kept and kept well. Sharing secrets, real secrets, important ones, with even one other person will change them. Writing them down is worse because who can tell how many eyes might see them inscribed on paper? no matter how careful you might be with it. So it's really best to keep your secrets when you have them, for their own good, as well as yours. This is, in part, why there is less magic in the world today. Magic is secret, and secrets are magic, after all, and years upon years of teaching and sharing magic and worse. Writing it down in fancy books that get all dusty with age has lessened it, removed its power bit by bit. It was inevitable, perhaps, but not unavoidable. Everyone makes mistakes. The greatest wizard in history made the mistake of sharing his secrets, and his secrets were both magic and important, so it was a rather serious mistake. He told them to a girl. She was young and clever and beautiful. Poppet snorts into her cup. Widget stops. I'm sorry, she says. Go on, please, Widge. She was young and clever and beautiful, Widget continues, because if the girl had not been beautiful and clever, she would have been easier to resist, and then there would be no story at all. 
The wizard was old and quite clever himself, of course, and he had gone a very, very long time without telling his secrets to anyone at all. Maybe over the years he had forgotten about the importance of keeping them, or maybe he was distracted by her youth or beauty or cleverness. Maybe he was just tired, or maybe he'd had too much wine and didn't realise what he was doing. Whatever the circumstances, he told his deepest secrets to the girl, the hidden keys to all his magic. And when the secrets had passed from wizard to girl, they lost bits of their power, the way cats lose bits of fur when you pet them thoroughly. But they were still potent and effective and magical, and the girl used them against the wizard. She tricked him so that she could take his secrets and make them her own. She did not particularly care about keeping them. She probably wrote them down somewhere as well. The wizard himself she trapped in a huge old oak tree, a tree like this one. And the magic she used to do was so strong, since it was the wizard's own magic, ancient and powerful, and he could not undo it. She left him there, and he could not be rescued since no one else knew he was inside the tree. He was not dead, though. The girl might have killed him if she could, after she had coerced his secrets out of him, but she could not kill him with his own magic, though maybe she didn't want to at all. She was more concerned with power than with him, but she might have cared about him a little, enough to want to leave him with his life, in a way. She settled for trapping him, and to her mind it served the same purpose. Though really she did not succeed quite as well as she liked to think. She was careless in keeping her new magic secret. She flaunted it, and generally did not take very good care of it. Its power faded eventually, and so did she. The wizard, on the other hand, became part of the tree. And the tree thrived and grew, its branches spreading up to the sky and its roots reaching farther into the earth. He was part of the leaves and the bark and the sap, and part of the acorns that were carried away by squirrels to become new oak trees in other places. And when those trees grew, he was in those branches and leaves and roots as well. So by losing his secrets, the wizard gained immortality. His tree stood long after the clever girl was old and no longer beautiful and in a way he became greater and stronger than he had ever been before. Though if he were given the chance to do it all over again, he likely would have been more careful with his secrets. As Widget finishes, the tent settles into silence again, but the tree feels more alive than it had before he started. Thank you, Poppet says. That was a good one. Kind of sad though, but kind of not at the same time. You're welcome, Widget says. Oh, it's so weird. <laughs> I love it. I know. And also, I think if my maths is correct, um, the twins are eight in this scene. <laughs> He's a little genius. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's exactly like Poppet says. It's like a sad story, but it's kind of lovely as well. I was just going to say, I have a question about that story. Yes. Do you think that that story refers to any of the characters in this book, or do you think it's completely f- plucked from there? Um... It comes up again. Yeah. And and when it comes up again, they talk about how... I, th- I think I might talk about this later, I can't remember. I'm sure I have a quote that says this more eloquently. Mm. <laughs> but basically how sto- like there's no original story, it's just yeah. like, you know. I think they talk about Marilyn being the wizard in the tree later on, I think. Okay, I didn't remember that. So... I don't, I don't know if it necessarily refers to anyone, but it is foreshadowing that is it so Kiko wants Marco to go into the tree? Yeah. 
That's what yeah. I thought, because like, there is the whole being trapped in a tree yeah. vibe. Yeah, and I'm on. sure he's like, I mean, that seems like a nice tree to be trapped in. <laughs> <laughs> Which, Which is a mood. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if Marco's a Taurus. <laughs> <laughs> Me looking at the tree outside our old place every single day. That would be a good tree to be trapped in. <laughs> um. So yeah, that, that was kind of it. I didn't have a lot to say about that quote. I just really liked it. But to end, I do have, like, a sneaky second quote. Um, And I am going to circle back to this idea later, but the other reason I love Widget is that he's the narrator of the Night Circus. (laughs) Um, Or at least that's how I read it. Or I think at the very least, he's the narrator of the interludes, if not the entire novel. And I'm going to show you why I think that in a second. My dumbass Um, did not consciously realise that but now you say it yeah I don't I don't think I picked that up when I first read it I think this is like a a I think I got it in the very last few scenes yeah but I hadn't put it together for the whole all the interludes so (laughs) basically the last chapter of the night circus besides like another little like interlude bit is a conversation between Alexander and Widget who is 16 at this point um, and I want to talk about that conversation more in depth later, but I will read the last couple of paragraphs right now because I think you'll see why it like endures me to widget so much <laughs> um, and why I think he's the narrator of the Night Circus. Widget swirls his wine around his glass. Wine is bottled poetry, he thinks. It is a sentiment he first heard from Herthesen, but he knows it is properly attributed to another writer though at the moment he cannot recall who exactly. There are so many places to begin, so many elements to consider. He wonders if the poem of the circus could possibly be bottled. Widget takes a sip of his wine and puts his glass down on the table. He sits back in his chair and steadily returns the stare aimed at him, taking his time as though he has all of it in the world, in the universe, from the days when tales meant more than they do now, but perhaps less than they will someday. He draws a breath that releases the tangled knot of words in his heart and they fall from his lips effortlessly. The circus arrives without warning. Hmm. It's so good. (laughs) Yeah, I just think that shows that like the novel we're reading is the story he goes on to To tell. tell. Mm -hmm. So that's why Widget's a favourite because he like tells the story that is one of my favourite stories. Um, and he is also like the Easter egg of the Night Circus that shows up in the Starless Sea. Yeah. Um, so he gets bonus points <laughs> for that. I wonder if he's Erin Morgenstern's favourite. Might be. Maybe he's her. Yeah. Yeah. She's the storyteller. Yeah. So who is your favourite character as I slide them across the floor? Oh. There we go. We have one copy of this book. <laughs> My favourite character honestly came to me instantly. I had no runner-ups and it was Frederick Thiessen. Yeah, I thought you were going to pick it. (laughs) Yeah. um, I love him so much. He is just the most gentle, particular, weird fella. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I love him to death with his capes and his cloaks and his clocks. (laughs) Herr Frederick Thiessen is the clockmaker who makes the clock that we heard about in the intro. Before I read things out about him, I'm just going to say more things about him. (laughs) He absolutely loves the circus, but one thing that I love about him is that he does not actually care about the fact that it houses his clock that much. 
No. Like, that's not why he loves it. He yeah. just loves the circus for what it is. Um, he never asks for more of things than what they are, and I'll say more about that later. <laughs> he becomes, he loves the circus so much that he becomes the founder of the reviewers, which is the best pun. Yeah. Because uh, they're dreamers, because that's the French word, who review the circus as it travels around the world, and they become like a little groupy fan club, and I love that. I think that there's something very unassuming and unentitled about Frederick. He carefully crafts things. He is a clockmaker, but then he just lets them go. Mm-hmm. Which I, as you know, we are people who make art. I find that really hard to do. Yeah. So I think I just really admire him for that, and I love the relationship that he has with Celia. Yeah. Because they have this friendship that is almost like a romance. Mm. But they both understand that it has this delicacy about it, that it's it's both more and less than a romance. Mm. And I think that that is also the nature of the circus. Like, for everyone who visits, it's magic for the sake of magic. And part of that is that it's temporary. And that's how all of their visits go together, mm-hmm. is that they know that they're not going to be in the same place for very long, but they just really love being around each other, Yeah, which I think is super sweet. I think they just have, like, a deep understanding of each other, Yeah, and I just love it. Me too. It's my favourite relationship in the book. Mm-hmm. It's, aw. Oh. So I too have two quotes, because <laughs> I love him so much. Uh, so the first one is quite long, I will say, but then the second one's very short. Mm-hmm. This is a chapter called Horology, and it takes place in Munich, 1885. Herr Frederick Thiefsen receives an unexpected visitor in his Munich workshop, an Englishman by the name of Mr. Ethan Barris. Mr. Barris admits that he has been attempting to track him down for some time after admiring several Thiefsen-crafted cuckoo clocks, and was pointed in the right direction by a local shopkeeper. Mr. Barris inquires as to whether Herthiesen would be interested in making a special commissioned piece. Herthiesen has a constant stream of custom work and tells Mr. Barris as much, indicating a shelf of variants on the traditional cuckoo clock that range from simple to ornate. I'm not certain you understand, Herthiesen, Mr. Barris says. This would be a showcase piece, a curiosity. Your clocks are impressive but what I am requesting would be something truly outstanding, das Meisterwerk, and money is absolutely no object. Intrigued now, Herr Thiessen asks for specifications and details. He is given very little. Some constraints as to size, but still rather large, and it is to be painted solely in black and white and shades of grey. Beyond that, the construction and embellishment is up to him. Artistic license, Mr. Barris says. Dreamlike is the only descriptive word he uses specifically. Herthiesen agrees and the men shake hands. Mr. Barris says he will be in touch and a few days later an envelope is delivered containing an excessive amount of money, a requested date of completion some months away and an address for the completed clock to be shipped to. It takes the better part of those months for Herthiesen to complete the clock. He works on little else, though the sum of money involved makes that arrangement more than manageable. Weeks are spent on the design and mechanics. He hires an assistant to complete some of the basic woodwork, but he takes care of all of the details himself. Her Thiessen loves details, and he loves a challenge. 
He balances the entire design on that one specific word Mr. Barris used. Dreamlike. The finished clock is resplendent. At first glance, it is simply a clock. A rather large black clock with a white face and a silver pendulum. Well crafted, obviously, with intricately carved woodwork edges and a perfectly painted face. But just a clock. But that is before it is wound. Before it begins to tick, the pendulum swinging steadily and evenly. Then, then it becomes something else. The changes are slow. First the colour changes in the face, shifts from white to grey, and then there are clouds that float across it, disappearing when they reach the opposite side. Meanwhile, bits of the body of the clock expand and contract like pieces of a puzzle, as though the clock is falling apart, slowly and gracefully. All of this takes hours. The face of the clock becomes a darker grey and then black, with twinkling stars where the numbers had been previously. The body of the clock, which has been methodically turning itself inside out and expanding, is now entirely subtle shades of white and grey. And it is not just pieces. It is figures and objects, perfectly carved flowers and planets and tiny books with actual paper pages that turn. There is a silver dragon that curls around part of the now visible clockwork, a tiny princess in a carved tower who paces in distress, awaiting an absent prince. Teapots that pour into teacups and minuscule curls of steam that rise from them as the seconds tick. Wrapped presents open. Small cats chase small dogs. An entire game of chess is played. At the centre, where a cuckoo bird would live in a more traditional timepiece, is the juggler. Dressed in harlequin style with a grey mask, he juggles shiny silver balls that correspond to each hour. As the clock chimes, another ball joins the rest, until at midnight he juggles twelve balls in a complex pattern. After midnight, the clock begins once more to fold in upon itself. The face lightens and the clouds return. The number of juggled balls decreases until the juggler himself vanishes. By noon, it is a clock again and no longer a dream. A few weeks after it is shipped, he receives a letter from Mr. Barris, offering his sincere thanks and marvelling at the ingenuity of it. It is perfection, he writes. The letter is accompanied by another exorbitant amount of money, enough for Hertheson to retire comfortably if he wished. He does not, and continues to make his clocks in his Munich workshop. He thinks no more of it other than a passing thought of how the clock itself might be doing and where it might be though he assumes, incorrectly, that it remains in London, particularly when he's working on a clock that reminds him of the Wonschram clock, which was how he referred to it during the more troublesome parts of its construction, uncertain whether or not it was a dream that could be realised. He does not hear from Mr Barris beyond that single letter. Oh, I love that passage so much. I love it too. I think it's just... I think there's so much of Friedrich in it even mm-hmm. though it's all about the clock. I love that, like, the clock itself, it's not like he's made stuff that ends up in the circus. It's not like this weird, like, oh, he somehow predicted all these things. Like, it, do you know what I mean? It, mm. It's, like, totally unique to him. 
Yeah, that's what I mean. It's not. Yeah. It's not really the circus. It's not like he thought oh, I'm going to create what this circus will be like. Cause, well, first of all, he didn't know it was going to that circus anyway. But like, I don't know. I don't know. I just love it. Yeah, I like that she's given him the clock, and not made it tie into the circus mm-hmm. because it's it's his clock. Yeah. And I think that just it shows. I love like that he spends so much time on this and then he doesn't think about it. Yeah. Because it's done, and all he wanted was to do it. Yeah, all he wanted was to make it. And then, like, he just keeps on making his wee clocks. He's so cute. <laughs> um, so that's that's my first passage. Um, <laughs> and also, I just felt like everyone deserved to hear that beautiful description. Yeah. But this is my passage that is more about her thesis. Mm-hmm. And this is when Celia goes to visit him in his workshop. The back walls are covered with finished or nearly finished timepieces. Clocks waiting only for final coats of varnish or other minor details. The clocks closest to the windows are already in motion, each moving in its unique way but keeping the same harmonious rhythm, a symphony of carefully ordered ticking. The one that attracts Celia's attention rests on a table rather than hanging on the wall or sitting on a shelf. It is a beautiful piece, more sculpture than clock. While many of the clocks are wood, this one is predominantly dark, oxidised metal. A large, round cage set on a wooden base that has been carved into swirling white flames. Within, there are overlapping metal hoops marked with numbers and symbols suspended from the top, hanging amongst the visible gears and a series of stars falling from the filigree cap at the top. But the clock sits quiet, unmoving. This one reminds me of the bonfire, Celia says. Is it not finished? No, it is complete, but broken, Friedrich replies. It was an experiment, and the components are difficult to balance properly. He turns it so she can see the way the workings extend through the entirety of the cage, stretching in all directions. The mechanics are complex, as it tracks astronomical movement as well. I shall have to remove the base and dismantle it entirely to get it running again. I have not yet had the time it will require. May I? Celia asks, reaching out to touch it. When he nods, she removes one of her gloves and rests her hand on the metal bars of the cage. She watches it thoughtfully. She makes no attempt to move it. To Friedrich, it appears she is gazing through the clock rather than simply looking at it. Inside, the mechanism begins to turn, the cogs and gears waltzing together as the number-marked hoops spin into place. The hands glide to indicate the proper time, the planetary alignments set themselves in order. Everything within the cage rotates slowly, the silver stars sparkling as they catch the light. Once the slow, steady tick begins, Celia removes her hand. Friedrich does not inquire as to how she managed it. Instead, he takes her to dinner. They do speak of the circus, but spend most of the meal discussing books and art, wine and favourite cities. The pauses in conversation are not awkward, though they struggle to find the same rhythm in speaking that was already present in their written exchanges, often switching from one language to another. Why haven't you asked me how I do my tricks? Celia asks, once they have reached the point where she is certain he is not simply being polite about the matter. Friedrich considers the question thoroughly before he responds. Because I do not wish to know, 
he says, I prefer to remain unenlightened, to better appreciate the dark. The sentiment delights Celia so that she cannot properly respond in any of their common languages, and only smiles at him over her wine. Besides, Friedrich continues, you must be asked such things constantly. I find I am more interested in learning about the woman than the magician. I hope that is acceptable. It's perfect, Celia says. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, but a man who just fires out, I prefer to remain unenlightened to better appreciate the dark. Yeah. And he's like one of the cleverest men. (laughs) Oh. I know. I just think that whole scene like the metaphor of like the clock that doesn't work and the delicacy of the inner workings of it and how she makes it work and he doesn't ask how Mm -hmm. but it's not even like a you did me a favor so I'm not gonna ask how you did it yeah it's a deeper like he doesn't want to know because it'll take the magic away it's also like a big moment for Celia because she doesn't tell people that she's like really magic yeah it's a very very tiny amount of people who actually know that her like tricks at the circus are real real yeah so she's revealing that yeah to him oh and i also love that like little moment where they talk about obviously most of their correspondence has been written Mm -hmm. and that like oh we like it can be it was a little bit awkward Mm -hmm. i just think that's a nice observation of when you've had a really deep connection with someone through writing yeah and then you meet them in real life and it can be a little bit stilted but they still have that like deep fondness yeah it's nice anyway that's me (laughs) that's me on Friedrich (laughs) what was your most relatable character then I kind of struggled with finding a relatable character I don't know why part of me was leaning towards Marco because out of the two magicians he's like the bookish one Mm. he like reads a lot he's the hopeless romantic Um, his magic is all done through writing which I think is very cool but I feel like the character that like calls to my soul is Bailey. Same. <laughs> so Bailey is just like an ordinary boy who wants to run away with the circus. Um, to me, he's the most like Zachary Ezra Rollins type character in this book. He's a young boy who feels quite lost. His parents want him to take over the farm. His grandmother wants him to go to college but he doesn't really know what he wants until he finds joy and a purpose in the circus. To be fair, he's probably one of the most relatable characters in the book just to anyone because a lot of his POV is him wanting to go to the circus. Yeah, discovering the circus. discovering the circus. Like, when he's not there, he wants to be there. I feel like he slots perfectly into the, like, reader who wants to jump into the novel role. And he's like the coming of age. Exactly, yeah. So I didn't like I didn't really know what quote to pick out for like I was like, how would I describe that he's relatable for a quote? But then I kinda like stumbled upon this one, um, that is about like his sentimentality, his like hanging on to <laughs> random sentimental items, which I relate to. His kind of like daydreamy nature and his discontent <laughs> as well. I am gonna howl if we have picked the exact same bit. We might have. I have two Bailey quotes, so... No, go for it. Go for your first one. Go for it. Bailey begins spending a great deal of time outside of the house. School does not take up as many hours as he would like. 
At first he works more, in the far rows of the orchard, choosing the farthest points from wherever his father happens to be. Then he resorts to taking long walks through fields and woods and cemeteries. He wanders past graves belonging to philosophers and poets, authors whose books he knows from his grandmother's library. And there are countless other headstones engraved with names he does not recognise, and more that have been so worn by time and winds that they are illegible, their owners long forgotten. He walks with no particular destination in mind, but the place he ends up most frequently is the very same oak tree he so often sat in with Caroline and her friends. It is more manageable now that he is taller, and he climbs to the topmost branches with ease. It is shaded enough to feel secluded, but bright enough to read when he brings books along, which soon becomes part of his routine. He reads histories and mythologies and fairy tales, wondering why it seems only girls are ever swept away from their mundane lives on farms by knights or princes or wolves. It strikes him as unfair to not have the same fanciful opportunity himself, and he is not in the position to do any rescuing of his own. During the hours spent watching the sheep as they wander aimlessly around their fields, he even wishes that someone would come and take him away. But wishes on sheep appear to work no better than wishes on stars. He tells himself that it is not a bad life, that there is nothing wrong with being a farmer. But still, the discontent remains. Even the ground beneath his feet feels unsatisfying to his boots, so he continues to escape to his tree. To make the tree his own, he even goes as far as to move the old wooden box in which he keeps his most valued possessions from its standard hiding spot beneath a loose floorboard under his bed to a nook in the oak tree, a substantial indentation that is not quite a hole but secure enough to serve the purpose. The box is fairly small, with tarnished brass hinges and clasps. It is wrapped in a scrap of burlap that does a fairly good job of keeping it protected from the elements and it sits securely enough that it has not been dislodged by even the most resourceful squirrels. Its contents include a chipped arrowhead that he found in a field when he was five, a stone with a hole straight through it that is supposedly lucky, a black feather, a shiny rock that his mother said was some sort of quartz, a coin that was his first never spent pocket money, the brown leather collar that belonged to the family dog who died when Bailey was nine, a solitary white glove that has gone rather grey from a combination of age and being kept in a small box with rocks, and several yellowed and folded pages filled with handwritten text. After the circus departed, he wrote down every detail he could remember about it so it would not fade in his memory. The chocolate-covered popcorn, the tent full of people and raised circular platforms performing tricks with bright white fire, the magical transforming clock that sat across from the ticket booth, doing so much more than simply telling the time. While he catalogued each element of the circus in shaky handwriting, he could not manage to record his encounters with the red-haired girl. He never told anyone about her. He looked for her at the circus during his two subsequent visits during proper nighttime hours, but he had not been able to find her. Then the circus was gone, vanished as suddenly as it had appeared like a fleeting dream, and it has not returned. The only proof he has now that the girl even existed and was not a figment of his imagination is the glove. But he doesn't open the box anymore. It sits firmly closed in the tree.
He thinks maybe he should throw it away, but he cannot bring himself to do it. Perhaps he will leave it in the tree and let the bark grow over it, sealing it inside. It is a grey Saturday morning and Bailey is up earlier than the rest of the family, which is not unusual. He performs his chores as quickly as possible, packs an apple in his bag along with his book and heads off to his tree. Halfway there he thinks perhaps he should have worn his scarf, but the day is bound to get warmer as it goes along. Concentrating on that comforting fact, he climbs up past the bottom branches he was relegated to years ago, past the branches claimed by his sister and her friends. This is Millie's branch, he thinks as his foot touches it. A feeling of satisfaction comes when he climbs above Caroline's branch, even after all this time. Surrounded by leaves that rustle in the breeze, Bailey settles into his favourite spot, his boots resting close to his almost forgotten box of treasures. When he finally looks up from his book, Bailey is so shocked by the sight of the black and white striped tents in the fields that he nearly falls out of the tree. That was the same one. Yeah. Oh well. It's the, <laughs> it's the best bit. It's just like, it's just cute. I don't have a lot to say about it. Like, I relate to the keeping the little things in the box and I relate to the like, I don't know, the, the, the wanting of more yeah. <laughs> and not knowing what to do about it. The, the little things in the box, particularly the actual things in the box, I felt, I was like, yeah. wow. Like, oh, I have also kept a shiny rock. I have also kept a feather. I have, like, a shell from, like, the beach that I just randomly still have. Like, I have my cat's kitten collar yeah. from, like, 20 years ago. Yeah. Like, yeah, that I was like, wow, that's very accurate. But the bit that I loved in that was the bit where he's talking about the stories and how, like, he never gets to be rescued because yeah. he's the boy. Yeah. And I always felt like the opposite where... I didn't want someone... I always felt like there was, like, girls that got ripped out of their life. Yeah. And I was always scared that someone was going to come along and, like, Mm -hmm. rip me out of my life. Yeah. And so I was, like... I felt like when I read that, I was like, oh, that's, like, the boy version of that. Yeah. Or, like, okay, so I'm the girl, so why aren't I being, like, (laughs) rescued or, like, taken somewhere cool? Yeah. (laughs) And, yeah, I do have another quote. This isn't, like, necessarily about relatability... I just think it's really lovely and I couldn't find anywhere else in this episode to mention it. So I just thought I'll chuck it in here because it's also a Bailey quote. Go for it. Um, and it is quite short. It seems a lifetime ago that he walked to the circus, though it was only a few hours. And more than that, it feels as though the Bailey who entered the circus was an entirely different person than the one leaving it now, with a silver ticket in his pocket. He wonders which is the real Bailey. For certainly the Bailey who spent hours in trees alone is not the Bailey who is granted special admission to a spectacular circus, who makes friends with such interesting people without even trying. By the time he reaches the farm, he is sure that the Bailey he is now is closer to the Bailey he is supposed to be than the Bailey he had been the day before. He may not be certain of what any of it means, but for now he does not think that it much matters. In his dreams, he is a knight on horseback, carrying a silver sword, and it does not really seem that strange after all. I absolutely love that passage. It's so sweet. I suppose I do relate to the, like, oh, I don't know what any of this means, but, like, I'm trying to find peace with that. <laughs> I think I related to... I, that was my runner-up passage for this bit Aww. as well, because we're... 
look at us being kindreds. <laughs> um, but I was like, it's weird because it's for different reasons. Again, because I was like, that's the feeling when you wake up and realise that your life is what you wanted it to be. Yeah. But you don't really know what to do with that information. Yeah. You're like, mm. <laughs> So was Bailey your relatable character? Bailey was my relatable character. Do you have anything character. else to read out? No. Literally no. Those were my two <laughs> passages. That do you have anything you want to add? or? Eh, let me just look at my notes. Or just... Yeah, ditto. <laughs> I, well, my runner-up uh, relatable character was mm-hmm. Isabel the fortune teller. Oh, I like Isabel. Because, so, Isabel's story is very sad, though. It is. Because she is in love with Marco, and he kind of is just with her, and then he's in love with Celia. Mm. And she know like, I think the thing about being relatable with Isabel is not that I've ever been in that situation, but more just where she, like, she knows that something ain't quite right yeah but she just kind of ignores it and is like (laughs) this is fine yeah but she's literally a fortune teller so she knows because the cards are telling her but she can't see because she's so close to it she can't see what it is and I was just like that is tragic and also like I don't know I just found that very like that's one of my big frustrations in my life is when I can look back at something or right after it's happened and gone I knew that yeah. I knew that was going to happen. Mm. So, like, I, I I vibe with Isabel. Uh, also, the fact that she's quite gracious about that whole yeah. scenario. Oh. Well, I was going to say, apart from the whole bit where she, like, knocks a circus off its axis, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, she's gracious up until the point where she snaps. Yeah. Which is also really And I don't vibes. think she ever means to... No, she doesn't mean absolute thing. destruction. She just means yeah. a little bit of vengeance and then it gets away <laughs> yeah. from her. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, who hasn't done that? <laughs> but yeah, that was, I think that was all I had. And just, yeah, Bailey... Bailey likes to prove that he exists, which I think is very mm. relatable to everyone. Yeah, that's sweet. I have favourite interludes next? Yes, yeah. let's do favourite interlude. Okay, I love all the little interludes. So in the same way that I like go back and read the short stories in this RLC, I like go back and read these interludes a lot to just like get a taste of the circus every now and then. But the one that sticks out to me is one titled The Hanged Man. Um, this is one that when I was younger I just thought like, oh that's cool. And now that I'm like older and know how to like read analytically <laughs> and like know a bit about tarot, I'm like, this is genius. <laughs> um, so I'll read it out first and then I'll explain why, why I like it so much and why it is genius. The Hanged Man. In this tent, suspended high above you, there are people. Acrobats, trapeze artists, aerialists, illuminated by dozens of round glowing lamps hanging from the top of the tent like planets or stars. There are no nets. You watch the performance from this precarious vantage point, directly below the performers, with nothing in between. There are girls in feathered costumes who spin at various heights, suspended by ribbons that they can manipulate, marionettes that control their own strings. Normal chairs with legs and backs act as trapezes. Round spheres that resemble bird cages rise and descend, while one or more aerialists move from within the sphere to without standing on the top or hanging from the bars on the bottom. In the centre of the tent there is a man in a tuxedo, suspended by one leg that is tied with a silver cord, hands clasped behind his back. He begins to move, extremely slowly. His arms reach out from his sides, first one and then the other, 
until they hang below his head. He starts to spin, faster and faster until he is only a blur at the end of a rope. He stops suddenly and he falls. The audience dives out of the way below him, clearing a space of bare, hard ground below. You cannot bear to watch. You cannot look away. Then he stops at eye level with the crowd, suspended by the silver rope that now seems endlessly long, top hat undisturbed in his head, arms calmly by his sides. As the crowd regains its composure, he lifts a gloved hand and removes his hat. Bending at the waist, he takes a dramatic, inverted bow. First of all, it's cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. <laughs> the more geeky reasons that I like this interlude are this. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, okay. She's settling in. <laughs> so, for those who aren't aware, The Hanged Man is a tarot card. It normally looks like a man being hung upside down by one of his legs by a rope. So this circus act is meant to reference that image. There's lots of tarot images that come up throughout the circus, not just in Isabel's like tarot reader tent, but in acts like this. But what I think is genius about showing us this specific tarot image is because the hanged man is the card that suggests ultimate surrender, sacrifice, or being suspended in time. Oh. <laughs> being suspended in time is particularly apt because that is what's happening in the circus. Um, apart from Poppet and Widget, who age normally, everyone is aging very, very slowly. Time, like, really is suspended, so the circus itself is a hanged man. As well, I think the placement of this interlude in the novel is very deliberate. So the scene before this one is titled Opening Night 3, Smoke and Mirrors. It mostly follows Chandrish, who's the proprietor of the circus, but he isn't aware of it being this, like, magical dual setting um, and it shows the bonfire being lit which just for simplicity's sake is the starting point of the duel and that chapter ends in some characters like wondering about Marco like pointing out how mysterious he is the bonfire is Marco's first move and with it's lighting it that's him halting everyone in the circus from aging the chapter after the hanged man interlude is titled Oniromancy I think I said that right, which is divination through dreams and it's a chapter from Bailey's perspective and it's the one where he visits the circus and meets Celia for the first time. So the reason I think the interlude's so fitting is because Bailey essentially inherits the circus from Marco and Celia. To stop the duel, Marco and Celia have to surrender their power from the circus. Bailey has to sacrifice his outside life to dedicate everything to keeping the circus going and by doing so, he sets everyone, apart from the Murray twins, free from the control of the circus and their lives are able to pick up again and they can actually age and time goes back basically to normal. That's a very like rushed and vague <laughs> description of the No, I think that was bit. pretty good though. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to point out like how clever this choice of tarot and the placement of the interlude is. As soon as you said, like, hanged man means, like, suspended in time and ultimate sacrifice, mm -hmm. I thought about the bit near the end where Marco and Celia are in that, like, weird, wispy world yeah. where they're suspended in time. Yeah. Even more so. Mm -hmm. And, obviously, the circus is suspended on them. And I was thinking about how they made... So, in that bit... Marco's essentially going to sacrifice himself and then Celia 
sacrifices herself too. Yeah. To be with him. Yeah. So they're both not dead, but they might as well be at yeah. that point. Yeah. Um. So they've both like sacrificed everything and they're suspended in time and they're only in each other's timeline, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um. For simplicity's sake. Yeah. <laughs> um. Which is also a cool thing if you've got a Marco chapter and then a Celia chapter mm-hmm. right after it. This book is very intricate. <laughs> it is. Um, what was your favourite interlude? My favourite interlude, I picked entirely on instinct just because I kept wanting to read it again. Yeah. And I have no cool geeky analysis <laughs> to go with it. But I wasn't planning to have the geeky analysis, it just kind of happened. No, maybe you'll have geeky analysis for this one because you've read this book a million times. But uh, my favourite interlude was Labyrinth. You walk down a hallway papered in playing cards, row upon row of clubs and spades. Lanterns fashioned from additional cards hang above, swinging gently as you pass by. A door at the end of the hall leads to a spiralling iron staircase. The stairs go both up and down. You go up, finding a trapdoor in the ceiling. The room it opens into is full of feathers that flutter downward. When you walk through them, they fall like snow over the door and the floor, obscuring it from sight. There are six identical doors. You choose one at random, trailing a few feathers with you. The scent of pine is overwhelming as you enter the next room to find yourself in a forest full of evergreen trees. Only these trees are not green but bright and white, luminous in the darkness surrounding them. They are difficult to navigate. As soon as you begin walking, the walls are lost in shadows and branches. There is a sound like a woman laughing nearby, or perhaps it is only the rustling of the trees as you push your way forward, searching for the next door, the next room. You feel the warmth of breath on your neck, but when you turn, there is no one there. I love that. I love it too, and it is very Starless Sea vibes. Yeah. I like to think that this is somewhere in the story that Dorian tells. <laughs> it feels like it, yeah. That's the first tent that Marco and Celia like collaborate on, which is quite cool. Yeah, and I just I like the poetry of mm-hmm. how it goes, you know, like fall like snow over the door and the floor. <laughs> yeah. It's very uh rhythmic and uh I like that they end up in a forest, obviously. But <laughs> yeah, I just I think that you can feel both of them in there mm-hmm. uh, very clearly. And so, but that eeriness at the end where it's like, oh, there's a woman laughing and then you feel the warmth of breath on your neck. But when you turn, there's no one there. Yeah. And like, that's really creepy. I wonder which of them made that room. Because they basically were making rooms in turn. Yeah. Like Mark and Sila for this labyrinth. I feel like... Um, I wonder who made that one. I feel like the first room with the playing cards would be Marco's. Yeah, he set it up. And so then the Celia one. would do the feathers with the snow. Mm-hmm. And then I think he did the forest. Because mm-hmm. he's good at conjuring landscapes. True. But, and then I feel like the warmth of breath on your neck. I'm like, is that is that Marco just flirting through the room? <laughs> is he just making moves? <laughs> Possibly, I wouldn't put it past that. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, I just kept coming back to that. Because I was like, that was so weird. It's yeah. very dreamlike. So, what was your favourite tent? So, I went rogue. <laughs> um, so, you've already read my quote. I was going to read out what Friedrich's clock 
is. Ah, okay. Um, so it's okay, I won't read it again. But see that quote earlier? That. I'll explain why I picked it though. But I just like love that the more you read the book, the more you discover about the clock. Mm. So that's why I was like, I know it's not like technically a 10, it's not technically a performer. It came from outside the circus, but I love that it becomes part of the circus so much. Like it's the first thing you see. Apart from like the sign, I guess. Yeah. Um, but they even saw the clock first because it, it was there before the sign lit True, up. yeah, true. That is very true. So yeah, it's the first thing you see. <laughs> that was like, honestly, that was it. That's why I picked it. It's just very integral to the setting. My runner up, but like I didn't pick the quote out for, but just one that always sticks in my head is like, that's cool, is the cloud maze. <laughs> yes. Because it just seems so fun. <laughs> like I want to go on like a cloud obstacle course. Well, I'll tell you what. I picked two (laughs) favourite tents, and one of them was the cloud maze. Oh, nice! So if I give you the page ref, do you want to read that quote and I'll read the other one? Sure, I can do that, yes. Cool. Uh, So I love the cloud maze too. I think it's amazing. (laughs) Amazing! Um, And it's on page 251. Despite his limited experience with the circus, Bailey is amazed that he has never seen this tent before. It is tall, almost as tall as the acrobat tent, but narrower. He stops to read the sign over the door. The Cloud Maze. An excursion in dimension. A climb through the firmament. There is no beginning. There is no end. Enter where you please. Leave when you wish. Have no fear of falling. Inside, the tent is dark-walled with an immense iridescent white structure in the centre. Bailey can think of nothing else to call it. It takes up the entirety of the tent, save for a raised path along the perimeter, a winding loop that begins at the tent entrance and circles around. The floor beyond the path is covered with white spheres, thousands of them piled like soap bubbles. The tower itself is a series of platforms swooping in odd, diaphanous shapes, quite similar to clouds. They are layered like a cake. From what Bailey can see, The space between layers varies from room enough to walk straight through to barely enough to crawl. Here and there, parts of it almost float away from the central tower, drifting off into space. And everywhere, there are people climbing. Hanging on edges, walking through paths, climbing higher or lower. Some platforms move with the weight, others seem strong and sturdy. The whole of it moves constantly, a light movement like breathing. Why is it called a maze? Bailey asks. You'll see, Widget says. They walk along the path and it sways gently, like a dock on water. Bailey struggles to keep his balance while he looks up. Some platforms are suspended from ropes or chains from above. On lower levels, there are large poles driven through multiple platforms, though Bailey cannot tell if they reach all the way to the top. In some places, there are swoops of netting, and others ropes hang like ribbons. They stop on the far side, where the path swings close enough to jump onto one of the lower platforms. There's a fly on the hand. (laughs) (laughs) Bailey picks up one of the white spheres. It is lighter than it looks, and kitten soft. Across the tent, people toss them at each other like snowballs, though instead of breaking, they bounce off of their targets, floating gently down. Bailey tosses the one in his hand back, and follows Poppet and Widget. As soon as they have walked a few paces into the structure, Bailey can see why it is called a maze. 
He'd expected walls and turns and dead ends, but this is different. Platforms hang at all levels, some low by his knees or his waist, others stretched high above his head, overlapping in irregular patterns. It is a maze that goes up and down, as well as side to side. See you later, Widget says, hopping onto a nearby platform and climbing onto the one above it. Widget always goes straight to the very top, Poppet says. He knows all the fastest routes to get there. Bailey and Poppet take a more leisurely route, choosing platforms to climb at random, crawling up bits of white netting and manoeuvring carefully through narrow passages. Bailey cannot tell where the edges are, or how high they have climbed, but he is relieved that Poppet seems much, much less troubled than she had been on the Stargazer as she laughs, helping him through the more difficult turns. How do we get down? Bailey asks eventually, wondering how they will ever find their way back. The easiest way is to jump, Poppet says. She pulls him over to a hidden turn that reveals the edge of the platform. They are much higher than Bailey had suspected, even though they have not reached the top. It's okay, Poppet says. It's safe. This is impossible, Bailey says, peering out over the ledge. Nothing's impossible, Poppet responds. She smiles at him and jumps, her red hair trailing out behind her as she falls. She disappears into the sea of white spheres below, enveloped completely before popping back up, her hair a shock of red against the white as she waves at him. Bailey only hesitates for a moment, and he resists the urge to close his eyes as he leaps. Instead, he laughs as he tumbles through the air. Reaching the pillow spheres below, it is truly like falling into a cloud, soft and light and comforting. <laughs> it's just so cute. It sounds so fun. I know. Do you know what it reminds me of? I don't know if you ever had this, but did you ever go to the outside inn? No. So there was this, like, restaurant, I guess, it was like Brewer's Fair type yeah. thing, um, called the Outside Inn. And it was, so the restaurant was decorated like a forest. It had like trees and pools and right. like rocks and a water wheel and everything because mm. it was outside. And, <laughs> yes. um, but there was a play area on it and it was huge. Mm. It was like, like you had to go through into a separate room mm-hmm. and it was like a full scale play area and it was called the Funky Forest. <laughs> and it had like climbing nets and these big mm-hmm. giant, those big giant exercise balls that you yeah. had to like bat away from entrances and yeah. like mirror tunnels and like everything yeah and that's what that reminds me of yeah it reminds me of like yeah like a soft play mm-hmm. like there is a place like back home which culturally offensive <laughs> it's called Geronimo's but oh, like yeah so we don't love that it doesn't exist anymore it's fine but that was always like fun to go to and it had like the big exercise balls and you could like swing on like there's ones like suspended yeah and you could ceiling. like swing on it yeah oh I love the soft play <laughs> can we still go to soft play is there is an adult like... soft can you imagine drunk soft play <gasps> wow <laughs> there is like those trampoline parks now I feel like that's almost the equivalent but I want the actual like climbing thing yeah I don't like trampolines scare me because I always like hurt skin my legs and graze <laughs> my elbows because they're all hard yeah Adult soft play, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what was the other one that you picked? So that one was my second favourite, and my first favourite is the Tent of Smells. Oh, yes. Uh, which we're going to talk about more later. Yeah. But I thought I would just read out the tent at the moment. <laughs> so, I'm not going to say much about this, I'm just going to read it. Go for it. Bailey finds a gap in the side of one of the tents. 
A split in the fabric, each edge dotted with silver grommets and a black ribbon hangs just above his head, as though this opening was meant to be laced together to keep the tent firmly closed. He wonders if some circus member forgot to relace it. Then he sees the tag. It is the size of a large postcard, attached to the black ribbon the way one might attach a gift card to a present. The tag hangs loosely a few feet above the ground. Bailey turns it over. The picture side shows a black and white etching of a child in bed, covered in fluffy pillows and a checkered quilt, not in a nursery but under a star-sprinkled night sky. The opposite side is white, with elegant calligraphy in black ink that reads Bedtime stories, eventide rhapsodies, anthologies of memory. Please enter cautiously and feel free to open what is closed. Bailey cannot tell if the tag refers to the break in the tent or if it has been misplaced from some other tent. Most of the tents have prominently placed signs in painted wood and entrances that are clearly defined or marked. This one seems as though it was not meant to be found. Other patrons pass by on their way from one part of the circus to another, too absorbed in their conversations to notice him contemplating a postcard-sized tag by the side of the tent. Tentatively, Bailey pulls the unlaced flaps apart, enough to peek inside to try and discern if this is indeed a separate circus attraction and not the back of the acrobat tent or some sort of storage area. He can make out only several twinkling lights and shapes that could possibly be furniture. Still unsure, he pulls the flaps apart enough to enter, stepping inside carefully per the instructions on the postcard which proves wise as he walks directly into a table covered in jars and bottles and lidded bowls that rattle against one another. He stops, hoping not to knock anything over. It is a long room, the size of a formal dining room, or maybe it only resembles a dining room because of the table, which stretches the length of the tent, though there is enough room to manoeuvre around it carefully. All of the jars and bottles are different. Some jars are simple glass mason jars, Others are glazed ceramic jars or ornate frosted glass. Bottles for wine or whiskey or perfume. There are silver-lidded sugar bowls and containers that look rather like urns. They appear to be in no particular pattern or order. They are simply strewn across the table. There are additional jars and bottles around the periphery of the room as well, with some on the ground and some on boxes and tall wooden bookshelves. The only element that correlates the room with the picture on the tag is the ceiling. It is black and covered with tiny, twinkling lights. The effect is almost identical to the upward view of the night sky from outside. Bailey wonders how all of this might relate to a child in bed or to bedtime stories as he walks around the table. He recalls what the tag said about opening things, wondering what could possibly be inside all of these jars. Most of the clear glass ones look empty. As he reaches the opposite side of the table, he picks one at random, a small round ceramic jar, glazed in black with a high shine and a lid topped with a round curl of a handle. He pulls the lid off and looks inside. A small wisp of smoke escapes, but other than that it is empty. As he peers inside, he smells the smoke of a roaring fire and a hint of snow and roasting chestnuts. Curious, he inhales deeply. There is the aroma of mulled wine and sugared candy, peppermint and pipe smoke, the crisp pine scent of a fir tree, the wax of dripping candles. He can almost feel the snow, the excitement and the anticipation, 
the sugary taste of a striped candy. It is dizzying and wonderful and disturbing. After a few moments, he replaces the lid and puts the jar carefully back on the table. He looks around at the jars and bottles, intrigued but hesitant to open another. He picks up a frosted glass mason jar and unscrews the silver metal lid. This jar is not empty, but contains a small amount of white sand which shifts on the bottom. The scent that wafts from it is the unmistakable smell of the ocean, a bright summer day at the seashore. He can hear the sound of waves crashing against the sand, the cry of a seagull. There is something mysterious as well, something fantastical. The flag of a pirate ship on the far horizon, a mermaid's tail flipping out of sight behind a wave. The scent and the feeling are adventurous and exhilarating, with the salty tinge of a sea breeze. Bailey closes the jar and the scent and the feeling fade, trapped back inside the glass with its handful of sand. Next, he chooses a bottle from a shelf on the wall, wondering if there is any distinction between jars and bottles on the table and the ones that surround it, if there is a discernible filing system for these curious containers. The bottle is tall and thin, with a cork held in place by silver wire. He removes it with some difficulty, and it opens with a popping noise. There is something in the bottom of the bottle, but he cannot tell what it is. The scent wafting from the thin neck is bright and floral. A rosebush full of dew-dripping blossoms, the mossy smell of garden dirt. He feels as though he is walking down a garden path. There is the buzzing of bees and the melody of songbirds in the trees. He inhales more deeply and there are other flowers along with the roses, lilies and irises and crocuses. The leaves of the trees are rustling in the soft warm wind and the sound of someone else's footsteps falling not far from his own. The sensation of a cat brushing past his legs is so genuine that he looks down expecting to see it but there is nothing on the floor of the tent but more jars and bottles. Bailey puts the cork back in the bottle and returns it to its shelf. Then he chooses another. Tucked in the back of one of the shelves is a small bottle, rounded with a short neck and closed with a matching glass stopper. He picks it up carefully. It is heavier than he had expected. Removing the stopper, he is confused, for at first the scent and the sensation do not change. Then comes the aroma of caramel, wafting on the crisp breeze of an autumn wind. The scent of wool and sweat makes him feel as though he is wearing a heavy coat, with the warmth of a scarf around his neck. There is the impression of people wearing masks. The smell of a bonfire mixes with the caramel. And then there is a shift, a movement in front of him. Something grey, a sharp pain in his chest, the sensation of falling, a sound like howling wind or a screaming girl. Bailey puts the stopper back disturbed. Not wanting to end on such an experience, he places the strange little bottle back on its shelf and decides to choose one more before leaving to catch up with Poppet and Widget again. He picks one of the boxes on the table this time, a polished wood box with swirling patterns etched into its lid. The inside of the box is lined with white silk. The scent is like incense, deep and spiced, and he can feel smoke curling around his head. It's hot. A dry desert air with pounding sun and powder-soft sand. His cheeks flush from the heat and from something else. The feel and sensation of something as luscious as silk falls across his skin in waves. There is music that he cannot discern. A pipe or a flute. 
and laughter, a high-pitched laugh that blends harmoniously with the music, the taste of something sweet but spicy on his tongue. The feeling is luxurious and light-hearted but also secretive and sensual. He feels a hand on his shoulder and jumps in surprise, dropping the lid down on the box. The sensation ends abruptly. Bailey stands alone in the tent underneath the twinkling stars. <sighs> I love it, but that penultimate one just makes oh, me want to cry. <laughs> yeah. Shall we explain why that makes us want to cry? Sure. Do or, you want to yeah, so that's when... Um, it's <laughs> when Friedrich dies he gets stabbed as yeah. he walks through the circus and the screaming is Celia? Isabel? Um, Celia Celia I think, I think. or, or maybe pop it's Poppet it. it's Poppet yeah and I hate that one <laughs> but all the rest of them are cool Amazing foreshadowing, because at that yeah. point you don't know. Yeah, at that point happen. you don't know. Is that, in time, is that one after that's happened? So that it could be bald? I need to see. Um, yeah, I think probably it has happened after the event, because this is Widget's tent. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, this is Widget's yeah. tent, so it would have to be after that. Um, it's a Halloween that he gets mm-hmm. stabbed, but I couldn't tell you the year. This just says October 1902, but I think it's 1901 that he gets. Uh, possibly. I could be wrong, but anyway. Yeah, I really yeah. love that tent. I love the whole idea of bottling a memory mm-hmm. or an experience. Yeah, it is based on a real thing, so I should have looked this up. There is a company that creates fragrances, or it may be like fragrance oils or something, but basically smell, like scents. Mm that are meant to be directly inspired by memories and you like you are meant to be able to sort of like walk around it and smell them all and then Morganson went to that and was like, I wanna put that in my book. I have seen that company, like I've seen Yeah, she thing. she talks about them but, on her Instagram and stuff all the time. I just can't remember what their name is right now. But um I just think that yeah, that whole description, again, it's so immersive and I like that it's Bailey just discovering this on his own. Yeah. Like, he's not been shown it. He just yeah. sort of stumbles into it. It gave me, like, early Harry Potter vibes. Where he's, like, <laughs> yeah. going about the castle and he's finding, like, the mirror and stuff like that. Yeah, it reminded yeah. me of that. It was that kind of storytelling. So I enjoyed that. Yeah, definitely. We don't support J.K. Rowling. <laughs> um, just <laughs> make that very clear. Just make that very clear. I just... I, I liked the story when I was a child. <laughs> so, yeah. On that note, then, I don't know, yeah. do you want to go with our, what would your bottle smell like if yeah. you could make a bottle? So, as you can kind of see, a lot of them are, like, about specific memories, but I couldn't really think of a specific memory that I associated a lot of smell mm. with. So I've just dis- instead decided to, like, dream up something that I would just like to experience. Okay. If I could just smell it over and over again. So I thought... My bottle, I didn't think about my, what my bottle would look like. Oh, neither did I. But just, just when you were reading it out there, I was like, oh, they all looked different. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. I'll mull that over. Yeah, tell um, me what it would smell like first. So I think it would first hit you with, like, the smell of a crackling fire. Okay. So maybe, like, birch wood. I think that's what my mum and dad's fire has now. So that smell now mm. makes me think of home. Like, a very smoky smell. And then it would like settle and blend into the scent of like paper and ink and like leather bound books. 
And then I think it would shift again into more of like a warming like drink scent. Mm. So like a mix of like coffee and chocolate and like a chai spice. And then it would finish with like vanilla. So like sweetness to round it off. That sounds very you. Because I just feel like if I could have a candle that smelled like that, I would be happy. So if I could just like... Yeah. But like in that order. Wow, I don't think I thought about the order. That's very specific. <laughs> so I've literally just made up right now that my bottle would be like one of those tiny little glass, almost like perfume bottles, but you know the ones that they didn't have the squishy thing on them. They just had like a glass stopper yeah. with like the pointy yeah, bit yeah. that goes into it. And it would so this bottle would look like that. And the reason why is that I would love to have a bottled memory of the smell of my grand's bedroom. Ooh. Yeah. Which is like such a specific smell <laughs> for me, but it's because it smelled so different to anywhere that I'd ever have. Mm-hmm. Like, so she had all those like old fashioned products. So she had like cold cream and rose water, and she always air dried her bed sheets so they always smelled like outside. Mm-hmm. She had this stuff that she'd put in the iron though before she steamed them. That was like lavender, mm-hmm. so they would smell like outside, but also this really cloying artificial lavender <laughs> yeah. smell. And then there was the smell of gold, like real gold and metal, that was really strong because her dressing table and her mirror had gilt edges. Right. But she also just had a shit ton of gold jewelry that was like her boxes would always be open. Yeah. And obviously I was little, so I was like going in them all the time. And then she always had this chair that smelled like wood and dust, even though it was upholstered. Right. So I think I would have that mm-hmm. as well. So like that, yeah, just that room, I feel like, is such a, like, the the memory of the smell comes to me before the memory of the room. Yeah. So that's like a very specific... That's such a good one. And it's so weird as well, because like, that's not, like, my grand moved out of that house later, and then her... St- stuff didn't really like she had a different room and it didn't smell like that yeah but like that's the room that I remember (laughs) but then I also was like I wonder what my essence would be like (laughs) if it was gonna be bottled so then I was thinking about all the smells that I like surround myself with every day and I was thinking it would be blue fabric softener to begin with (laughs) because I feel like that's the first thing that anyone smells off me Mm because I like douse my clothes in it yeah and then I've got that red currant and oak perfume that's yeah. really strong yeah. and smells like trees. So maybe that. Mm-hmm. Paper. Assam tea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just constantly <laughs> off my breath and like my fingers <laughs> and <laughs> everywhere. And maybe like dirt or leaves because I've got all these plants kicking about. Yeah. So that was fun too. I was like, what would my bottle smell like if someone was trying to remember me? Which was egotistical, but I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. I feel like I kind of almost did that. You say that I always smell like coffee and vanilla. You do always smell like coffee and vanilla. I don't even drink coffee. <laughs> no, but you just smell like coffee. I do. <laughs> In a good way. Like, it's a nice, yeah. it's freshly brewed coffee. <laughs> no, I get that. And I feel like you are very, like, cosy. You always yeah. smell warm, which is a weird thing to say. I like to smell that way. But you know what I mean? Like, some people have, like, a sharp or, like, a cold smell. Mm-hmm. And you always have, like, a warm smell. <laughs> Yeah. This is getting weird now. <laughs> we do live together. I don't just go about sniffing her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you think about what your bottle might look like, or is that not enough time? Um, 
I really like when candles come in that really like dark browny ambery jar. Mm. So that. Yeah. I feel like if I for the second one that I did, I feel like just a little wooden box mm. would do me. Yeah. Like a tiny wooden box with like a little design on it because I yeah. love those. Yeah. <laughs> what tent would you make? Yeah. This was hard because I don't have a brain like Erin Morgenstern. Yes, same. <laughs> so this is the one bit of my notes that I like only just did today because I was just like, I don't know. It was the last thing I um, did too. I was really stuck. So I don't think this exists. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it could be cool to have a tent that is kind of like a library. So it's got like books in it. Right. And you go up, but none of the books have like, like you don't know what's in them. Right. Just, they're like plain or they're like got nice patterns but they don't say what they are okay and you like pick a book and you settle down in one of like many seats so maybe it's like a little armchair like a chesterfield sofa or like floor cushions and blankets and then as you read the book the tent around you starts morphing into the setting of the book that's dope so like it's it's not like you're being like flung into the story you're still like the observer but it's happening like around you until it doesn't feel like you're even reading anymore. It's like you're just watching it. So you get all the like sensory input but aren't like thrown into the like danger. There's yeah. like danger in the book or something. Almost like someone whispering the story in your ear as you're watching yeah, it. Yeah, like very basically when, like, you know when Dorian <laughs> reads yeah. the story to Zachary and he can hear like the owl and stuff, that, that basically that, but you can see it. That would be very cool. That was my idea. <laughs> what was your idea? Okay, so I took it a bit far. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I've gone into a lot of detail here. Good, that's fine. <laughs> um, so what I'd like is, it's not unlike a morph of a couple of the tents mm-hmm. that Marco and Celia make. But... That was part, sorry to cut mm-hmm. in, that was part of my struggle was that everything I thought of, I was like, oh, they kind of did that though. Yeah. So I just, I, I got to the, oh, well, they've done everything. So yeah. this is my take. So I would like to make a tent that was like a living diorama of all the seasons in one place. So in the middle, I'd like it to be propped up, because it's still a tent, by a big tree, Mm -hmm. which obviously one of them has, because it's got the wishing tree. But this is like a big tree um, that props it up. And you can't really see the top of the tree, because it's mostly just the trunk. So think like Tree of Life. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. (laughs) Yeah. And the tent would kind of be in quadrants, so you'd have spring, summer, autumn, winter, dividing the tree. Mm-hmm. So one quarter of it would be bare, one quarter would have like reddish leaves, one would be in full bloom, and one would be just little buds blossoming. Mm-hmm. And then hanging from the roof would be like old school science museum planetarium models uh-huh. of all of the planetary bodies and the stars, and then depending on which time of year that you stood in, you'd see the ones that were around the zodiac. Right. So yes. that would be like a spinning diorama around the edge of the tent. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them would move. And then I'd use magic so that all the... Because obviously... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that all the smells and the sensations of each season was there too. Mm. Obviously the circus is at night, but I'd have this tent simulate day and night running on its own little rhythm depending on the outside mm-hmm. bitties. And it's cool because the circus travels all over the world. So if you were somewhere hot, the visitors could see snow. Or if you were somewhere landlocked, they could be like on a beach in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And I'd have it so it felt like one of Marco's illusions where 
the horizon away from the tree seems to stretch on for miles. Yeah. Even though there would be an end to yeah. it. And I would like encourage people on the wee note that you get to carve something into the tree. So that, like, imagine this, right? This is the story that I imagine happening (laughs) in this tent. So imagine you have, like, long-distance lovers or family or whatever, and one of them, like, puts their initials in the season that it is in the other person's place. (laughs) Like, if you're in different hemispheres or something. Like, you're in the winter, but you put your initials in the summer because they're in the summer. And then if the tent, if the circus goes to them, then they do whatever one's... Yeah. Season. I just think that's so cute. It is cute. And you could like leave little notes. And I also just love. I'm a person that is never happy with the weather. So I love the idea that you could go into the circus, and if you were sick of the winter, you could go into the summer bit. But if you're sick of the summer, you could go into the winter bit. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you're in like one of those places that doesn't really have seasons. Yeah, you would like, have. Yeah, if you're like yeah. on the equator, you would get to experience autumn. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So, yeah. I was just thinking, like, what's magical, but I can also construct it. And I was like, the weather. Fair enough. Why not? (laughs) Five favourite lines, Emily. Uh, Am I doing all five or are we going back and forth? I don't remember what we did. I don't... How how do you want to do it? Do you want to trade? Sure, let's trade. Cool. I'll start then. You start. Okay. And before he can tell her to tell Widget goodbye for him if need be... She leans forward and kisses him, not on the cheek, as she has a handful of times before, but on the lips, and Bailey knows in that moment that he will follow her anywhere. Oh, that is a good one. I know. (laughs) My first one is just, but the nicknames stick, as nicknames do. (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) We add our own stories, each visitor, each visit, each night spent at the circus. I suppose there will never be a lack of things to say, of stories to be told and shared. I like that one. <laughs> Just, again, quite a simple one. New wishes ignited by old wishes. Uh, that was almost on mine as well. <laughs> <clears throat> I am haunted by the ghost of my father. I think that should allow me to quote Hamlet as much as I please. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, my next one is actually a little interaction. Do you remember all of your audiences? Marco asks. Not all of them, Celia says, but I remember the people who look at me the way you do. What way might that be? As though they cannot decide if they are afraid of me or they want to kiss me. I am not afraid of you, Marco says. That was almost amazing. That was so good. I have a similar vibe for my next one. Okay. Um, I would have written you myself if I could put down in words everything I want to say to you. A sea of ink would not be enough. But you built me dreams instead, Celia says. Oh, We had to have a bit of the romance in there. Yeah, obviously. Uh, my next one you've already said, but I'm going to say it again. Oh, go for it. Uh, he wonders if the poem of the circus could possibly be bottled. Yeah, I would have included that if I hadn't already <laughs> used it. And my last one is... As soon as he speaks the words, a forgotten memory finds its way to the front of her mind. Two green-clad figures in the centre of a vibrant ballroom, so undeniably in love that the entire room flashes with heat. Mm. My last one is, it is late, so there is no line for the fortune teller. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. And then I have a runner-up that 
I just, because all mine were short. So this one is, there is a small silver plaque on the platform, partially obscured by the cascading gown. It reads, in memoriam, but does not specify who it is for. Mm. Which I just, I like the idea of the plaque being partially obscured by a gown out of context. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, So that sounds kind of done our planned bits. (laughs) Yeah. We had an an other, a miscellaneous (laughs) section where we could just go off. And I am going to suggest that maybe I go off first. Sure. Because I feel like you're going to go off fully. Yeah. Do you need the book back? No, I do not. Um, So I didn't have a whole lot else to say because, again, I've only read this book once and only recently, so it's still sinking (laughs) in. But one thing that I didn't cover in those quotes is that I love the aesthetic of the circus. Sure, yeah. So I love how it's all black and white, which makes it both like a living photo and a chessboard and a wedding all Mm -hmm. at once, which it is all of those things. Yeah. I think that there is a beautiful visual metaphor down all of those tracks and the idea of course, that love or magic or fate is always in the spaces between the black and white mm-hmm. is very implied, I think, yeah. in the in the costuming. The Rosie Thorns pieces that you've shown me mm. just capture it so beautifully. I think it's kind of nice to have the magic be the stark thing in a world because normally it's either hidden or it's very like rich and colourful or it's very ethereal and like glittery and powdery yeah uh whereas this feels like very academic hyper stylized magic mm-hmm. being black and white and obviously there's like wrought iron and paper and all of these very like physical yeah. things that like playing rip. cards is quite a good one yeah. yeah playing cards and just snow and yeah i think that the way that she's embedded those colors through all these different textures is very cool yeah and ought to be appreciated and i did yeah. <laughs> Also, like, I don't, probably not these days, but I know when she did her book events for this, like, people were showing up in the reviewer's costume, which is basically, also the circus is black and white, so the reviewers will come to the circus in black and white, but they'll wear a pop of red to Mm -hmm. show that they're, like, they, like, appreciate the circus, but they're not part of it. Yeah. And I know that people would show up to, like, her book events dressed like that, which I just think is amazing how you have a book that has an aesthetic, like, yeah. an actual clothing aesthetic to go with it. That's what I mean, and I think, like, obviously you have the popper red in Pop It and Widget. Yeah. You have the popper red that is the blood. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, I don't know, it's, that's also a very sort of academic thing like yeah what's black and white and red all over type thing <laughs> yeah uh so yeah i just enjoyed that that's me that was my whole miscellaneous section <laughs> i have a lot more <laughs> yeah i figured so i'm a selling i'm so sorry guys so my extra thing that i would like to bring to this discussion is the similarities in theme with the starless sea okay um I love, I'm sure we talked about this before, but I love when authors return to similar themes across their books but approach them in different ways. I actually find it very, like, comforting. (laughs) One, for, like, familiarity, but also because it's something I want to do with my own writing. So, to me, as someone who's read both books multiple times, (laughs) I see so many of the seeds for the Starless Sea in the Night Circus. You've kind of mentioned some as well today. So I just thought I would share some examples of it. I don't have much analysis, so I'm hopefully not going to go on for too long, but I have a bunch of quotes. 
This is one of those scenes, just like in the Starless Sea, that is very visually stunning. Um, and I think you'll be able to tell pretty quickly why it sounds like it should exist <laughs> behind one of those doors yeah. that lead to the Starless Sea. This is a scene where Celia and Marco are like displaying some of their magic to each other. Um, and the bits I'm going to read are Marco's illusions. Am I close enough for your illusion? She asks. If I say no, will you come closer? He retaliates, not bothering to hide his grin. In response, Celia takes another step toward him, the hem of her gown brushing over his shoes, close enough for him to lift his arm and gently rest his hand on her waist. You didn't have to touch me last time, she remarks, but she does not protest. I thought I'd try something special, Marco says. Should I close my eyes? Celia asks playfully. But instead of answering, he spins her around so she faces away from him, keeping his hand on her waist. Watch, he whispers in her ear. The striped canvas sides of the tent stiffen, the soft surface hardening as the fabric changes to paper. Words appear over the walls, typeset letters overlapping handwritten text. Celia can make out snatches of Shakespearean sonnets and fragments of hymns to Greek goddesses as the poetry fills the tent. It covers the walls and the ceiling and spreads out over the floor. And then the tent begins to open, the paper folding and tearing. The black stripes stretch out into empty space as their white counterparts brighten, reaching upward and breaking apart into branches. Do you like it? Marco asks, once the movement settles and they stand within a darkened forest of softly glowing, poem-covered trees. Celia can only nod. He reluctantly releases her, following as she walks through the trees, reading bits of verse on branches and trunks. How do you come up with such images, she asks, placing her hand over the layered paper bark of one of the trees. It is warm and solid beneath her fingers, illuminated from within like a lantern. I see things in my mind, Marco says, in my dreams. I imagine what you might like. I don't think you're meant to be imagining how to please your opponent, Celia says. I've never fully grasped the rules of the game, so I'm following my instincts instead, Marco says. And then I'm going to, like, jump ahead a little bit. <clears throat> I can't believe that I forgot to pick out a <laughs> poem forest. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Amateur hour. Um, this is just a little wee extra bit. He turns to the crimson tree and it glows brighter, the red of embers lifting to the bright warmth of fire. The surrounding trees follow suit. As the light from the trees increases, it becomes so bright that Celia closes her eyes. The ground beneath her feet shifts, suddenly unsteady, but Marco puts a hand in her waist to keep her upright. When she opens her eyes, they are standing on the quarter deck of a ship in the middle of the ocean. Only the ship is made of books. It sails thousands of overlapping pages, and the sea it floats upon is dark black ink. Tiny lights dance across the sky, like tightly packed stars, bright as sun. I thought something vast would be nice after all the talk of confined spaces, Marco says. Celia walks to the edge of the deck, running her hands along the spines of the books that form the rail. A soft breeze plays with her hair, bringing with it the mingling scent of dusty tomes and damp, rich ink. Marco comes and stands next to her as she looks at the midnight sea that stretches out into a clear horizon with no land in sight. It's beautiful, she says. 
Yeah. <laughs> Boats and seas and books and trees. Yeah. Very starless scene. This scene that I'm about to read reminds me of the dollhouse in the starless scene. Oh, scene. yeah. Oh, I bet you I know what it is. Yeah, I think you will. <laughs> is it one in his flat? Yeah. <laughs> Marco beckons her forward, leading her to the adjoining room. He opens the door but does not step through it and when Celia follows him, she can see why. It may once have been a study or a parlour, not a large room, but perhaps it could be referred to as cosy were it not for the layers of paper and string that hang from every available surface. Strings hang from the chandelier and loop over to the tops of shelves. They tie back upon each other like a web cascading from the ceiling. On every surface, tables and desks and armchairs, there are meticulously constructed models of tents. Some made from newsprint, others from fabric. Bits of blueprints and novels and stationery, folded and cut and shaped into a flock of striped tents, all tied together with more string in black and white and red. They are bound to bits of clockwork, pieces of mirror, stumps of dripping candles. In the centre of the room, on a round wooden table that is painted black but inlaid with light stripes of mother of pearl, there is a small iron cauldron. Inside it, a fire burns merrily, the flames bright and white, casting long shadows across the space. Celia takes a step into the room, ducking to avoid the strings that hang from the ceiling. The sensation is identical to entering the circus, even down to the scent of caramel lingering in the air. But there is something deeper beneath it, something heavy and ancient underlying the paper and string. Marco stays in the doorway as Celia navigates carefully around the room, mindful of the sweep of her gown as she peers into the tiny tents and runs her fingers delicately over the bits of string and clockwork. This is very old magic, isn't it? she asks. It's the only kind I know, Marco responds. He tugs a string by the doorway and the movement reverberates throughout the room, the entire model circus sparkling as bits of metal catch the firelight, though I doubt it was ever meant for this purpose. Celia pauses at a tent containing a tree branch covered in candle wax. Orienting herself from there, she locates another, gently pushing open the paper door to find a ring of tiny chairs representing her own performance space. The pages that comprise it are printed with Shakespearean sonnets. Celia lets the paper door swing closed. <laughs> Do you know what that reminds me of? Mm-hmm. Was it the... Oh, Jesus. The gay wizard book <laughs> that you were reading. Marvellous Light. Marvellous Light. <laughs> gay wizard book, yes. Gay wizard book. <laughs> when we were talking about physical magic mm-hmm. and, like, having the strings and whatever, I love that Marco's magic is kind of not dependent, but, like, represented by this diorama thing. yeah. I like, I suppose that's something we've not really talked about is the Night Circus is inspired by Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is about two dueling magicians, but they have like very different approaches to magic and that's kind of where the idea for the Night Circus came from. But I'm sure Marvelous Light is inspired by Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell as well because cause of like the physical nature of the magic. yeah. <laughs> Whereas Celia's is much more like mind over matter. Yeah. Type stuff. Yeah, it's kind of just, it's just inner. 
yeah like, she just has a talent for it i think is the kind of phrasing i think though like about. you can tell the different like marcos is all about study and books and like yeah. putting like the things you put down mm-hmm. whereas she's like the things you keep in because yeah. hers is like her dad cuts her fingers open and then she heals them yeah with the power of her mind yeah well that like is the point of the jewel right is mm-hmm. that her dad's that's his way of magic too alexander who teaches marco like he he picks like a random person yeah. like he he picks people who aren't magic and teaches them this kind of magic it's just very interesting yeah i um, think it's cool that's something we don't really talked about today but that is a very big part of the yeah that's why well. i wanted to kind of touch on it a minute because yeah. i was like this is a good opening to explain yeah. the magic systems in this book <laughs> yeah so the last line of one of the little interludes makes me very happy um, I'm not going to read, like, the whole interlude. I'm just going to read, like, the last couple sentences. It's in the interlude called Playing With Fire. I think this was one of my runner-up interludes. Mm. The artist on this platform holds pieces of flame in her bare hands and she forms them into snakes and flowers and all manner of shapes. Sparks fly from shooting stars, birds aflame and disappear like miniature phoenixes in her hands. She smiles at you as you watch the white flames in her hands become, with the deft movement of her fingers, a boat, a book, a heart of fire. It makes me think of Zachary and Dorian on the boat at the end of the Starless Sea. Yeah, when is a heart... What is it? When is his heart not his heart? When does the... When is the something's heart... What? (laughs) What's that line in the Starless Sea? And it's like, it's... Because the heart's in Dorian... The heart's not in Dorian. It's in a box. Not in a box, but like and Dorian needs it, it into Zachary. Into Zachary, sorry, but like it's fate's heart. Fate, yes. So like, when is like when is fate's heart not a heart that belongs to fate or something like that? Is the line okay? And that, yeah, that <laughs> that line reminded me of that. I butchered that. Just ignore <laughs> that. Just ignore that. Um. <laughs> Yeah, so this is just a little line, but it's an idea that's repeated throughout the Starless Sea as well as this book. I think this is the one that I sort of mentioned earlier. Uh, Yeah. Old stories have a habit of being told and retold and changed. Each subsequent storyteller puts his or her mark upon it. Whatever truth the story once had is buried in bias and embellishment. The reasons do not matter as much as the story itself. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and then similarly, this is like another little line about destiny, um, which is a- again such an important part of the Starless Sea. And this is Celia saying this to Bailey. You're not destined or chosen. I wish I could tell you that you were if that would make it easier, but it's not true. You're in the right place at the right time and you care enough to do what needs to be done. Sometimes that's enough. I love that line because I hate the whole destined thing. Yeah. Like, I know that we have different views about serendipity and fate and stuff like that, (laughs) but I generally don't like when stories are destiny, and I like that this one isn't. Yeah. No, I I agree. Yeah. (laughs) So my last bit, (laughs) I promise, is about the last chapter. So the last full chapter of this novel is called Stories. Um, It's that scene I mentioned earlier between Widget and the man called Alexander, I want to read two quotes from this chapter, but they are two of my favourite passages in the (laughs) book, so I think it's worth it. So this is the first, this is the very start of that last chapter. 
Stories have changed, my dear boy, the man in the grey suit says, his voice almost imperceptibly sad. There are no more battles between good and evil, no monsters to slay, no maidens in need of rescue. Most maidens are perfectly capable of rescuing themselves in my experience, at least the ones worth something, in any case. There are no longer simple tales with quests and beasts and happy endings. The quests lack clarity of goal or path. The beasts take different forms and are difficult to recognise for what they are. And there are never really endings, happy or otherwise. Things keep going on. They overlap and blur. Your story is part of your sister's story, is part of many other stories, and there is no telling where any of them may lead. Good and evil are a great deal more complex than a princess and a dragon, or a wolf and a scarlet-clad little girl. And is not the dragon the hero of his own story? Is not the wolf simply acting as a wolf should act? Though perhaps it is a singular wolf who goes to such lengths as to dress as a grandmother to toy with its prey. Widget sips his glass of wine, considering the words before he replies. But wouldn't that mean there were never any simple tales at all? he asks. The man in the grey suit shrugs, then lifts the bottle of wine from the table to refill his own glass. That is a complicated matter. The heart of the tale and the ideas behind it are simple. Time has altered and condensed their nuances, made them more than story, greater than the sums of their parts. But that requires time. The truest tales require time and familiarity to become what they are. Hashtag our fairy tale episode. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Um, and then this is just another bit later on. Which is very interesting, like, after that quote, this is in the same conversation. <laughs> I tell stories, he says. It is the most truthful answer he has. You tell stories, the man asks, the peaking of his interest almost palpable. Stories, tales, bardic chronicles, widget says, whatever you care to call them. The things we were discussing earlier that are more complicated than they used to be. I take pieces of the past that I see and I combine them into narratives. It's not that important, and it isn't why I'm here. It is important, the man in the grey suit interrupts. Someone needs to tell those tales. When the battles are fought and won and lost, when the pirates find their treasures and the dragons eat their foes for breakfast with a nice cup of lapsang souchong, someone needs to tell their bits of overlapping narrative. There's magic in that. It's in the listener. And for each and every ear, it will be different, and it will affect them in ways they can never predict, from the mundane to the profound. You may tell a tale that takes up residence in someone's soul, becomes their blood and self and purpose. That tale will move them and drive them, and who knows what they might do because of it, because of your words. That is your role, your gift. Your sister may be able to see the future, but you yourself can shape it, boy. Do not forget that. He takes another sip of his wine. There are many kinds of magic, after all. It's the nicest thing he says in that whole book. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was that was my bits that I wanted to add. I just like that, um, like I said, you kind of see the seeds of the Starless Sea in this book, but not like it feels. I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like a sequel or anything. It's just that. No, it's like she's exploring it deeper. Yeah. Like everything she says in that last conversation, she goes on to show in the Starless Sea. Yeah, I feel like that is kind of it. 
that bit, the interlude that I read earlier that has the six doors, I also like that little Easter egg. Yeah, like, that's it true. It has six doors and you choose one. That's like, true. I wonder how long that image must have been in her head. I wonder if she knew what it was going to be. Yeah, I know, true. I do wonder that. But yeah, I, and I also just love that like Widget shows up. It's the scene where Dorian and Zachary have gone through the wardrobe <laughs> to the past and they're like at this kind of like ball ball with all these people who like supposedly have been at the harbour in the past and Widget is there. And he sees Zachary, which I love. What a good wee world. (laughs) So that is us. I enjoyed this. I hope it made sense. (laughs) As with the Star of Lucy episode, I feel like we didn't really explain what the plot is at all. But um, I hope you guys consider picking it up because it's just very special and very magical and I can't believe it was her first book. Yeah, that's crazy to me. Like, in a way it makes sense having read The Starless Sea first and that mm-hmm. being, like, so immense and epic mm-hmm. that this is, like, baby version of that. <laughs> Not in, like, quality, but just it's more condensed, yeah. it's more uh, traditional novel. Yeah. It's still mad, but, like, that makes sense to me. That Oh, like, okay, if that was the second one, this was the first one. That yeah. makes sense. But... This one of its own merit for a first novel. What the absolute fuck? Yeah. I think that is why The Star Lucy didn't come out for so long. I think she did struggle with, like, imposter syndrome. Yeah, how are you going to top that? I think that was the... That's like second album syndrome. Yeah. On speed. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so... (laughs) If you want to feel really insecure as a writer... Yeah. Um, so yeah, I love that. Let us know if there's any books we should book deep club. dive on. Uh, a next book club episode. I don't know what we would do. I feel like it's better if we choose it, to be honest. I rescind that invitation. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I feel like the only reason that these episodes work so well is because we both like read it and then we're like, oh my god, I love that so much, we have to talk about it. Yeah, I don't think... I don't see this as like a something that will happen every season no. thing. Like, it'd be nice if we did that, but I don't I don't think that'll be it. I think it needs to be a natural, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, if you've got recs that you think we'd both like, then sure. Yeah, it. give us recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that is us. If you have any comments or questions, our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we talked about today including the infatuated mix which has all the music we mentioned i actually have a night circus playlist so i'm gonna link that i was literally gonna say oh my god we haven't talked about any songs but she's armed i have so many she's armed (laughs) (laughs) and yeah please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there yes do that thing (laughs) thank you for listening to this very very long episode we appreciate you and we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.